Today we're going to return to 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. That's where we're going to be going. 1 Peter 5, 12. And the plan is to finish the letter of 1 Peter today. So I'll read to you the final verses in 1 Peter, verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Lord, we thank you for these words, which are your words that you gave through Peter and to the people who received it then and even to us today. We pray that we would learn of the truths that are in it, that we would learn of your grace, which it speaks of, that we would stand for a minute. So we pray that you would strengthen us to live those set-apart lives in your grace and by your grace that you call us to, that you would shape us according to your word. We receive it with joy and thank you that you are with us, that you instruct us, that you strengthen us, and that we enjoy this fellowship around your word together this morning. Amen. In this message this morning, what we're going to do is, first I'm going to have you imagine what it would have been like to be a recipient of this letter. And after that, I'm going to read you the entire letter and ask that you just listen to it, as that's how it was received then. Somebody would deliver the letter and somebody would read it to them. Nobody had a copy of it. They weren't looking along with it. So in that way, you can imagine what it would have been like to just have received this letter and hear the whole thing read to you. After that, we're going to focus on what Peter teaches about grace in this letter. As he says, he, we're commanded to stand firm in it. So we want to see what he teaches about grace in it, and we're going to finish out with those last few verses and the teaching that is there as well. Imagine that you live in the great Roman Empire during the first century. Overall, you really enjoy your life. You live at the center of the world, the center of culture and trade. The Pax, Ro the Pax Romana, that's the Roman peace, has brought about an almost one-world language. You can talk to almost anybody anywhere. You also enjoy the most advanced road system ever created on planet Earth and cutting technology for shipping foods and goods around the world. You love the variety of foods and entertainment that you get to enjoy. This is the place where your family is from. This is the place where you work. Life is pretty good for the most part, and your future in Rome seems very promising. Sure, there are some tensions between the civil authorities and citizens, between various ethnic groups, religious groups, and there's a few troubling things in the economy. But 
you found your way to blend in and enjoy life and not really upset anybody. That is, until you became a Christian, a little Christ, as people would mock them, a disruption to so-called Roman peace, a disruption to Rome's religion, Rome's politics and economy. Your family disowns you, and they inform your master at work that you're one of those rebels against the Roman state who rejects Caesar, their gods, and their way of life. Little by little, you are excluded by family, friends, the other people you work with, and they just keep pleading with you to just don't take this Jesus is Lord thing so seriously. One of your friends takes you aside and talks to you one day and tries to reason with you and says, look at how much this is costing you. You're losing everything, and what do you have to show for it? You're in danger of not having enough money to make ends meet, and you just recently got married. There's no reason to not just play it safe and enjoy the comfortable life in Rome. Yet you choose to suffer for silly things like saying that there's another king than Caesar who will judge our deeds. Nobody is judging us here except you. And from our standpoint, it is you who is under judgment with all the misery that's come your way. Why won't you just go back to how you were? And why can't things just go back to how they used to be? Well, you think about what your friend says. And you think, maybe, maybe I could go back and things would be easier. I could, but not with a clear conscience. So you explain to your friend, Jesus gave his all for me. How, how could I give him anything less in return? If I'm gifted to suffer like him, I know that while I suffer with him, that I'll also be glorified with him someday. That's my hope. Well, though you expressed your hope in Jesus with gentleness and you stood firm when you were pressured to step down, your life results in all sorts of trials, various trials. Through a progression of events, the Roman state's infrastructure technology that you used to so enjoy ends up being the way to get you out of town and ship you out to northern Asia Minor. Now you find yourself far from home. Nothing feels familiar here. There's, you have no blood relatives. Well, your spouse is with you, but not really. They're with you because they got booted out of Rome with you, but they're against you because it's your wacky religious beliefs that got them here in the first place. Concerning making a living, you end up being purchased by a master who runs a goods delivery service. And he always seems to take his frustrations out on you. Anytime he's upset, he just seems to come and find you, and he yells at you and beats you from time to time. And you have no legal recourse in the land in which you live for such an injustice. It's just how life is. You think that your life probably feels much like that of an Israelite in Egypt. You think about being in exile often. You believe in the God of the Exodus, and you would like to see the next one happen sooner than later. You don't doubt God. You have tasted and seen that He is kind. You believe that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. You have brothers and sisters in Christ, which are forever family to you. 
You may have lost citizenship status in one place, but you have gained citizenry in an eternal kingdom of righteousness. You've been learning from your elders at church about the God-breathed writings of men like Moses, Isaiah, and David. In every Lord's Day, you enjoy the Lord's Supper where you're reminded every Sunday that Jesus is your Passover sacrifice. Jesus is the Exodus causer. Jesus is the Sabbath rest giver. And you enjoy this in fellowship with other Christians. And as you take the Lord's Supper, you're reminded that of His death in your place, of His resurrection, His ability to give you new life, and that He is coming again to bring His rest not just to you, but the entire creation. As you gather with God's people, you see a portrait of home, the place where your heart is, a city that is yet to come. You see a portrait of Jesus in these people, these little Christ. This is the closest thing to home and family you know. And the church gathering is your lifeblood because the church's heartbeat is worthy is the lamb who was slain. And this one day out of the week strengthens you for every other day of the week. And now you find yourself gathered with the church on the Lord's Day. But this Lord's Day is unique and special because an old friend from Rome is at the gathering, Silvanus. And people around you are beginning to whisper about how Silvanus has brought a letter, a letter from the Apostle Peter himself. Your mind circles back to the day when you first repented and believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins while you were listening to Peter Peter preach about these things years ago. And while you reflect on Peter's words then, you're eager to hear Peter's words now. And one of your elders gets up and reads Peter's letter to everyone. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was 
indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have been now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you are, who are younger, be subject to the elders. 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter's letter is one that reminds us of the salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ. It reminds us that there's a certain hope in our future salvation that will be revealed. But it's a salvation that's not only future, it's a salvation that's worked out in the present, that's displayed through us living holy lives, through us living our lives with everything of our life being set apart to our holy God. It's also a salvation not only of the future and the present, but of the past, where it was foretold long ago but right now is faithfully being fulfilled until it's fully revealed. And in remembering our great salvation, it produces hope in us, hope amidst suffering. And in remembering Jesus' example, as Peter reminds us, we see Jesus' example of lived holiness amidst suffering. And that produces holiness in us because when we behold Him, we become like Him, and remembering Jesus' cross work and His certain return, that reminds us that God knows how to judge the unrighteous, and He knows how to deliver the righteous. Hope and holiness amidst suffering are key themes in this letter which we have read. And the only reason that we have this certain hope and we have these lives of holiness to our God is because God has shown grace to us. By God's grace, we have gone from being without hope in this world to having hope in the resurrected Christ. By God's grace, we have gone from being separated from Him to being separated from this world and set apart to living holy lives to our holy God so that other people may come to know the hope that we have in Him because they can see Christ in us. So as Peter ends this letter by mentioning the true grace of God and saying stand firm in it, what I want to do is to go back and look at all the times that he mentions grace and what he teaches about it to build out our understanding of God's grace so that we'll 
know what it is that we're to be standing firm in. The first mention of grace that I want to look at together is in chapter 1 and verse 2. You'll see that at the end of the paragraph there if you have paragraphs in your copy of God's Word. But he ends verse 2 by saying, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. What we learn here in 1-2 is that grace can be multiplied. And that grace is multiplied according to the foreknowledge of God, as Peter writes about. The God who elected you and placed you in exile only to deliver you out of exile, to display His sovereign redemption to the ends of the earth. Grace multiplied by setting you apart by the Holy Spirit, no longer to be a slave to sin, but a slave to Him. Grace multiplied for obedience to Jesus Christ, to be committed to the God of the new covenant, to be an ambassador of that covenant, because He's given you a holy heart to love Him and to live for Him. Grace multiplied by thinking about the whole Trinity is involved in your salvation, in your life right now. Grace multiplied to elect exiles by the fact that you've been born again to Jesus. Grace multiplied beyond your multiplying trials in life, a grace that is sufficient for today's circumstances. And as we read of these things, we can praise God that grace can be multiplied because we don't need grace only today, we're going to need it tomorrow. And it's a grace that's multiplied to us by all of the things that are in this letter. It's multiplied to us by pursuing, learning about God and living for God. As Peter goes on to write about, you'll find this in verse 10. This is chapter 1, verse 10. Peter mentions grace for the second time. He writes concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. This was a grace that was prophesied by men like Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, grace which God's people longed to understand. They longed to meditate on it, to think about it, to study it, to live in it, to display it to others, to speak about it. And have you seen this happen in your own heart? You try to understand something in the Scripture. You're trying to understand what it teaches about Christ, and as you learn about it, your, your heart is excited and it soars because you're seeing what Abraham learned about Christ and Moses learned about Christ and David learned about Christ and what Isaiah says about Christ. But at the same time, you have more questions. You have more answers, but you also have more questions about what you're learning about. And the excitement leads to more study, more worship, deeper enjoyment of the living Christ revealed through His Word. When you study Christ in the Scriptures, every day is like Christmas. You're always unwrapping gifts which you can share with others. Peter also mentions grace again in chapter 1, verse 13. This is his third mention of grace, chapter 1, verse 13. 
And we learn here that future grace sanctifies. Thinking about future grace sanctifies in 1.13 where Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace multiplied and prophesied also sanctifies. Grace is for yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And there's something about future grace, about the future revealing of Jesus Christ that is especially captivating to the mind and to the affections and to your life because it excites you about your hope in Jesus' return because you know it's going to happen and you want it to be today. And this certain hope in Jesus it prepares you to leave this place. You know that you're going somewhere else. And as you think about Jesus' return, it makes you want to be found faithful when He shows up. It makes you want to be found living in holiness because you want Him to see His image in you when He shows up. One of the reasons that I think studying the last things in the Bible, studying eschatology is so intricately complex is so that we'll spend more time thinking on the world to come than the world that is passing away. Because when we think about Jesus' future kingdom of righteousness, we grow as citizens of that righteousness that we're going to live in in His kingdom forever. What is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? We read for believers in this passage that grace will be brought to them. But what about those who were not in Christ? Well, Peter says there is judgment for those who disobey, who do not believe in Him. But this is a time for you to examine yourself. Will Jesus be bringing you grace or will He be bringing you judgment? Will He find you on that day dead in sin or alive in Him? Will He bring you grace or judgment? Have you been born again by God's grace to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I'm not asking if you've been born into a Christian family or if you've been born into attending church or if you've been born into hanging out with Christian people. Have you been born again to Jesus Christ? Do you love Him? Do you love Jesus Christ with an undivided love? Do you have a desire to honor Him with your life? I'm not inquiring about living a perfect life, but the direction of your life. Is the direction in your life, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, to do it to the glory of God? Is your aim in life to be pleasing to Him? Is there something in your heart that when you hear these words you think, yes, I want, I want my life to be about His glory? Or are you content to hear such words with the false hope that maybe you'll be able to enter the kingdom of God in comfy slippers rather than combat boots? Have you gone from hearing about the cross to carrying a cross? Have you gone to the funeral of you and the new birthday of the life of Christ in you? As we think about these things, I want to read to you a statement from the Apostle Paul in Galatians, which is shocking, yet something every true Christian would love to be able to say with the life to back it up. 
Paul writes this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Imagine the character of a man who can get up and say something like that and it actually be credible. When I grow up, I want to be able to make such a statement about myself with credibility. And when you grow up, I want you to be able to do that as well. And to also for us to be able to join Paul in what he later writes in Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. As you sit here today, are you crucified with Christ? Are you crucified to the world, or do you still find it fascinating? Who or what has your heart, your all, your thoughts, your affections, your way of life? What consumes you? You can't come to Jesus Christ on a bridge and bring the love of the world with you. The way of salvation is not a bridge but a cross. You must come to Him crucified and self-denied if He is to be glorified. If you have no life in Christ, I pray that God may give it to you. And if He does, that you would know and understand that the path of following Him is narrow and hard. You'll need grace not only for Him to save you and to cancel your sin debt against Him, you'll need grace to endure living for Him, which is what Peter writes about in chapter 2, starting in verse 19. This is Peter's fourth mention of grace. It's grace to endure. In 2.19, Peter writes about grace to endure. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We need grace to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly and keeping our minds set on God while it's happening. We need grace to endure Christ's example, to think about it and to live by it. And that grace will endure because God's mercy will endure for you in that moment. This is a grace which endures innocent suffering. Grace endures innocent suffering, and in doing so, it serves as a portrait of the suffering servant, him who suffered innocently. It's a picture of Jesus Christ, and we get to be a walking portrait of that when we suffer with Him and like Him. This is a grace to endure fearing God and not man when all sorts of intimidating things are happening around us. A grace to endure suffering, not for your rights, but for God's glory, and to suffer for your neighbor's God-given rights. What makes a Christian like that? A Christian who endures how do you endure like that? When I think about Christians who endure, I think of the Christian and politician William Wilberforce who spent 46 years of his life 
enduring seeing the African slave trade and slavery itself becoming illegal in the British Empire. I've never done anything for 46 years in my life. But to think about a man who would endure that long, what is it about his character and conviction that makes a man like that? Well, I think part of it is found in this quote from a book that William Wilberforce wrote called Real Christianity. Wilberforce writes, true Christians consider themselves not as satisfying some rigorous creditor, but as discharging a debt of gratitude. Part of how we endure is gratitude for God's grace. The grace of Jesus not only to save us, but His grace and also showing us how to live, giving us an example of how to live with a self-forgetful, self-sacrificial, long-suffering kind of love, a love like Jesus' love, a love that gives rather than thinking about what it can get out of things. May God give us sons who imitate Wilberforce as he imitated Christ. The fifth mention of grace is in chapter 3, verse 7. This is grace to image God in marriage. I think that is the point taught here. Grace to image God in marriage, chapter 3, verse 7. Peter writes, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is about grace to image God to somebody else, grace to show God's character to your spouse, grace to live with activity that shows what God's activities are like. Redemptive activities are the things that you image in life. And you image these things so that the world can see something of a picture of Christ and His love for His church and His, the church's submission to Christ as the head. This is about a grace for a husband to be a leader. Grace also to not be distant or harsh with one's wife. Now, this is grace to be a wife who is a helpmate to her husband. Grace to trust God's design for marriage even when it's scary to do that sometimes and you think that you might be able to lead things better. This is about a grace also to display the grace of God to an unbelieving spouse. And God, we pray that for those who have unbelieving spouses, that you would strengthen them through such a hardship to show Christ to their spouse. And we pray that by your grace that you would grant salvation to those that they seek to display to them. And we pray that we would uh, hear you answer this prayer by saving people quickly, that they would not have to endure long in this hardship. You are the God of salvation, and you have brought that to us, and we pray that you would bring it to the household of those who long to be a witness and to have a spouse who believes with them. Amen. Peter mentions grace for the sixth time. 
in chapter 4, verse 10. And here he mentions grace as a gift which we have received to be a gift to others. So I've entitled this mention of grace, uh, Grace to be a gift to others in 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Grace gifts us as Christians to be servant gifts to others. It's a way that God chooses to display His grace in the world. Grace that displays that God has grace that matches every trial. You have a variety of trials, and He has a variety of grace to match every single trial that you could ever endure, and He sends His people to be a gift to you to show you that God has grace for such things. We see that even in a small way in the deacons having this sign up to come over to your house to clean up trees on your property. And how, how is that a display of grace? Well, are the deacons coming over to your house because you're worthy? Are they coming over to your house because you deserve to have people come over and serve you like that? The only thing that you contribute to that equation is you have a need. You have trees that fell down in your yard. This is how grace works. God showed you grace not because you're worthy or because you deserved it. The only thing you brought to the salvation equation is your need for God's grace. And we get to be a picture of those sort of things when we serve one another. And that's how we should think about our service to one another. I get to be a small, faint, little candle of God's grace to somebody by just going to serve them selflessly and to meet a need. God shows us His grace through our fellow brothers and sisters ministering to one another, using their speaking gifts, using their serving gifts, and we're strengthened in God's grace when we see others living by the strength which God supplies to us to serve one another. And God is glorified through Jesus Christ when we serve like Jesus Christ in humility and love, sacrifice, self-denial, enjoying our unity in Him who has dominion over all things forever and ever. Amen. Peter mentions grace for a seventh time in chapter 5, verse 5. In 5.5, 5, we read that God gives grace to the humble. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The grace that Peter wishes to be multiplied to his recipients in the beginning of his letters is for the one who has a humble attitude. He says, if you want God's grace to be multiplied, this is the attitude that you need to have. The one who seeks to clothe themselves with the servant attitude of Jesus toward other people. The one who does not waste their time being anxious about things in life, but they redeem the time by seeking His kingdom and His righteousness and trusting that God's really actually going to care for you. 
This also describes the one who humbly recognizes that they have a great enemy, but they also have a great fellowship of grace with others to strengthen them to stand in that grace amidst temptation. Peter mentions grace for an eighth time in chapter 5, verse 10. And in 5.10, we learn that God is the origin of all grace. God is the origin of all grace in 5.10. The verse reads, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is the God of all grace. God is where grace comes from. Grace can be hard to find with men, but God sits on a throne of it. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, which Jesus is pleased to provide for those who come to Him for that. Jesus provides needed grace to suffer for Him, and He Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's ninth and last mention of grace is found in verse 12. We'll look at that as we come to the end of this letter. In verse 12, Peter teaches us that God's grace is dependable. If you look at verse 12 with me, it says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The reason that you can stand firm in God's grace is because it's dependable, because your God is a rock and a refuge. He doesn't move. He's reliable. He is your steadfastness. But this is a grace that you stand in Him, but as you stand in Him, you don't stand alone. Notice how Peter refers to Silvanus as a faithful brother. And think about how the grace of God is showed in these men using their gifts. Peter's using his communication gifts. Silvanus is using his serving gifts to get this letter to God's people in the dispersion. And we see Christians standing firm in grace as a community of grace. They're servants of grace to one another. Peter's serving them teaching of grace. Silvanus is bringing that letter, and all sorts of things happened in the fellowship that received this letter that day as displays of God's grace and His community of grace. And Peter, in this verse, he says, I have written briefly to you, in other words, he's saying there's more to be said about these things. There's more to be said about God's grace. I haven't exhausted it. You haven't exhausted it. It can be multiplied. And I feel something of that as we come to a close on this letter. There's so much more to say about it. There's so much more to say about God's grace in our lives. Yet while our series in 1 Peter ends here, our relationship of enjoying God's grace and 
living in God's grace is going to continue. We're going to stand firm together in the true grace of God that we've learned about from this letter. And not only us as a local expression of Jesus' church, but in solidarity with Christians around the world as we sought to do in preaching on issues that are not only happening in uh, the persecution of Christians in Canada and how the government there is persecuting them, but we, we stand in solidarity with those Christians who are in suffering, uh, praying for the persecuted church, and also with an eye to we are the persecuted church, and it's on the increase where we live, and to learn from them and the fellowship that we can have with them to follow those who are being faithful in persecution now as we may well soon walk into very similar things. We see something of this community of the church and solidarity with them being communicated in these words and the epistle where Peter writes, she who is in Babylon greets you. He's talking about the church that is in Babylon. Uh, You hear the apostle John talk about the church, the bride of Christ as the elect lady. I think the New Living Translation interprets this verse well and interpreting it as your sister church in Babylon greets you. So this letter, which Peter wrote from Rome, it comes as a postcard, a postcard from Babylon with pictures of exile on it and reminders of Exodus. And also, Peter mentions Mark, his spiritual son. This is the John Mark who there was some sort of tiff with the apostle Paul back in the past, and Paul felt betrayed by him and didn't want Mark to come back. But Peter was the kind of guy who knew what it was like to have betrayed somebody else and then still been restored. So, Peter, we don't have this story written down, but collecting what we know of these sort of events, receives Mark as a son, restored to Christ to follow him, a son whom he receives as another adopted son in whom he enjoys fellowship with. All of these things are a reminder that we stand firm in the grace of God while showing affection toward other Christians, other Christians who might have failed in the past. Maybe they sinned in a really big way and really messed up some relationships, and it's questionable if those relationships are ever going to be fixed this side of heaven. But we want to show affection to them. We want to show God's redemptive love toward them, which Peter communicates more of this affectionate sort of Christianity in verse 14, where he writes, greet one another with the kiss of love. This is a command in Scripture for affectionate Christianity. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be a kiss, so don't go crazy, but it's some sort of uh, appropriate display of affection. You know, for us, it's often a firm handshake or a hug. And there's just something about those displays of affection that it it builds the friendship. It knows, you know, I've got you. I'm one of you and you're one of us. And God is with us. 
and I love you. It's, there's something about affection being displayed that builds the fellowship of believers with one another. Well, as you know, Peter began his letter mentioning grace and peace, saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And he mentions both grace and peace as he ends his letter. He ends with an exhortation to stand firm in the grace of God, and his final words, peace, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Grace is in God, peace is in Christ. There's so many things that are paralleled from the beginning to the end, and I don't have time to mention all of them, but one of them is how he begins this letter and mentioning the people that he's writing to as being in the dispersion, but he ends the letter in saying, you're in Christ. He's like, think about these two truths and how they connect. And when you're thinking about life in the dispersion, life in exile, which we are in even now, peace is a good word in troubling times, especially in life where you have persecutions, problems, pressures in this evil present age, to remember you have peace. You have peace in Christ, in the Prince of Peace. You might be exiled from heaven in Babylon, that is the gate of confusion, but your deliverance is going to be into the new Jerusalem, that is the pillar of peace. Peter, throughout his letter, draws on biblical teaching about the exile and biblical teaching about the exodus. And he reminds us that how God saved people and redeemed people in the past is still his pattern and mission today. The pattern of his redemption, how it works, and the mission of that redemption, which is to make his name known to all of creation. Peter makes these sort of connections by alluding to teaching like Exodus chapter 19. Where in Exodus 19, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Peter draws on such teachings to remind us that we're tied into that same mission. We're in mission mode right now, the mission of making God known. And we're in mission mode until the mission is accomplished and we get our eagle flight out. And while we join in the mission of making the glory of God known to the ends of the earth, we can be encouraged that there is a greater exodus still to come which Isaiah writes about that in Isaiah 40, 31. Isaiah 40, 31 reads, But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah here is a exe he's an exegete. He's a theologian. He's a pastor. 
He's using that cross-reference back to Exodus chapter 19 to teach us that we're going to be redeemed like that. We're going to be taken out of a slavery like that. We're going to be taken out of Egypt like that. God's going to redeem us like that, but bigger and better, and it's going to be final and forever. And when we think on this great salvation which Scripture teaches us about, what does it produce in us? When we think about this marvelous salvation which we read about throughout Scripture, it produces hope amidst suffering. And it produces holiness because we want to be found faithful and holy when Jesus returns. Thinking on our great salvation produces hope amidst suffering and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And it's here that we'll close in prayer as the music team comes forward for our final song. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for this epistle which teaches us of the certain hope that we have in you, that you are redeeming us, that you will redeem us that you will keep all of your promises that you have made in Scripture. And we look forward to that day and pray that we would not be distracted by intimidating things happening in the world, that we would not be fearful of man or our circumstances, but we would be fearful only of you who is God over all men, who is God over all circumstances, who works all things according to the counsel of your will, Help us to trust in you without wavering. Help us to stand firm in the grace that we read about in this epistle. Help us to grasp the many aspects of your grace displayed in your word and in this letter. Help us to be reminders of your grace as we would love one another and serve one another. Help us to bolster up one another in fellowship as we would display Christ in us and Christ to others, that we would see Jesus Christ in one another, that we would be witnesses of Christ to others that don't know you. Help us to be faithful in the mission of making you known until the day that that mission ends, because there is only a short time in which is the day of salvation, and today is that day of salvation. We pray that you would help us to see things the way that you do, to love the lost the way that you do, to, to desire to make your name known to the ends of the earth the way that you do. Help us to walk in faithfulness to you, our holy God. Help us to walk in holiness to you, our holy God. Help us to help one another in the fellowship and the community of grace that you have mercif mercifully brought us into. God, you are gracious. Help us to stand firm in your grace. We know that you will do it, and we thank you for that. Amen.